Stephen Whitaker wants us to know the story of this song, the story this song tells, not as the culmination of song in Ireland, but rather as the continuation, oh so compelling, of bringing together words and music to express in a fundamental way something of the Irish soul. Songs like this that speak to those with ears to hear around the world. Music writer Tim Peacock tells us, preceded by shimmering hits, dreams, and linger, the Cranberries' landmark debut album, Everybody Else is Doing It, So Why Can't We?, suggested its creators had taken up the baton handed down by jangly indie pop classicists. However, that preconception was swiftly turned on its head by this tune, Zombie, the furious anti-terrorism lament with which the rising Irish stars trailed their second album, 1994's No Need to Argue. Zombie's genesis is traceable to March 20th, 1993, when two bombs planted by the Irish Republican Army exploded in the northern English town of Warrington. The blast from the second bomb injured dozens of people, but most cruelly claimed the lives of three-year-old Jonathan Ball and 12-year-old Tim Parry, a twin tragedy that shocked and appalled both the UK and Irish public. I remember at the time there were lots of bombs going off in England and the troubles were pretty bad, singer Dolores O'Riordan said in a 2017 classic rock interview. I remember being on tour and in the UK at the time and just being really, really sad about it. Deeply affected by the tragedy, O'Riordan began working on a song that reflected upon the event. However, unlike many Cranberries tracks that sprang from group collaboration, the formative zombie was composed alone during her own time from her band's punishing tour schedule. They're still fighting with their tanks and their bombs and their bombs and their guns in your head, in your head. Peacock continues, released as No Need to Argue's lead single on September 19, 1994, Zombie was promoted with a powerful video that also made a significant impact. Directed by Samuel Baer, the video was filmed in Belfast during the Troubles using real-life footage. Dolores O'Riordan memorably appeared covered in gold makeup in front of a cross alongside a group of boys covered in silver makeup. Though banned by the BBC at the time, the clip has since become one of rock's most watched music videos on YouTube, clocking up one billion views in April 2020 making the Cranberries the first Irish band to have a song reach that landmark. At the time, O'Riordan received criticism for Zombie's hard-hitting lyrics, Another head hangs lowly, a child is slowly taken, with some detractors suggesting she was taking sides in the Northern Irish conflict. However, as the singer pointedly observed in a 1994 interview with Vox magazine, the song was written entirely from a humanitarian point of view. I don't care whether it's Protestant or Catholic. I care about the fact that innocent people are being harmed, she said. 
That's what provoked me to write the song. It doesn't name terrorist groups or organizations. It doesn't take sides. It's a very human song. Zombie's anti-terrorism stance struck a chord when it was first released, becoming a UK Top 20 hit and winning the Best Song Award at the 1995 MTV Europe Music Awards. Perhaps more significantly, the Cranberries were later invited to perform Zombie alongside Northern Irish political leaders John Hume and David Trimble at the ceremony for the 1998 Nobel Peace Prize. The song's anti-violence message continues to endure. During the 90s, Dolores O'Riordan dedicated it to citizens of Bosnia and Rwanda during live shows, while a recent BBC article reappraising the song's accomplishments observed that her message applies equally to recent attacks in Manchester, Paris, and Egypt, just to name three. That from Tim Peacock writing for You Discover Music in 2022. And the story sets the stage for the journey Stephen Whitaker and Jenny Whitaker will take us on to help us understand some of the enduring songs, such as this one, in the Irish tradition. Dr. Whitaker is a professor in the Department of English and Theatre at the University of Scranton. His areas of scholarship are rhetoric and the great Irish writer James Joyce. He teaches courses in Irish literature and culture, and he has a guitar hanging in his office, perhaps like a balladeer of yore might have a harp handy, because he is a musician who believes certain Irish tunes can provide a powerful entryway into important episodes in Irish history, as we'll hear. Jenny Whitaker is an occupational therapist and Stephen Whitaker's wife. As a vocalist, she often joins him and captures the keening, sorrowful sounds that express the grief and sadness present in so many Irish songs. We invited Stephen and Jenny to come to the WVI studios to explore the braiding, as Dr. Whitaker describes, of words and music and history and culture in the Irish tradition. And so we begin with... Two ideas. One... The history of Ireland is the history of conquest. It's the constant state of the island. The oldest Irish sagas talk about uh, the fear books and the Danans and other tribes washing over the island. And these were uh, before the Romans even arrived in England. The Romans never made it to Ireland. But the history of the island is of more or less constant conquest. And that might strike you strange if you look at the map of Western Europe and imagine, say, England out there in the Atlantic, uh, the British archipelago, the far edge of that, the distant part of that is this little country called Ireland. And say, if you were a Roman and you were looking at this map as they were, uh, you would think Ireland is just practically the end of the world and it's it's not to be worried about in any way. But here's a, a little thought experiment. Take that map and rotate it clockwise 90 degrees so that Ireland is at the top of the map. And when you do that, you'll see on one side you've got um, Scandinavian countries and the Baltic and the North Sea. And on the other side, you've got Spain and North Africa and the opening to the Mediterranean. 
And when you rotate the map like that, you realize that Ireland is right in the middle of Western Europe's principal waterway trade route. And everybody moved through Ireland. Uh, The Vikings, before they got to Sicily, of course, stopped in Ireland. And so Ireland is, in fact, like Sicily in many ways. Sicily is a, a crossroads in the middle of the Mediterranean. And Ireland is similarly a crossroad. It's, it's a place where everybody went and repeatedly conquered. So that's the, the sort of historical picture that it's in Irish blood to be um, resistant. And then when we look at um, St. Paddy's Day, patron saint of Ireland, his, his color is blue. It was until we, we get to um, the rebellion of 1803, and we might talk about that. We might talk about the wearing of the green. That's when uh, the color of St. Patrick then became green in the, in the Irish popular imagination. But St. Patrick has always been, well, first of all, he was a conqueror. He led the conquest of the island by uh, the forces of Christianity. And because of Henry VIII, he became sort of an emblem for old Ireland, that is, uh, Catholic Ireland. And so St. Paddy's Day and being old Irish become conflated, especially after William of Orange conquered Ireland in, in 1690. And so certain Irish thought that being Catholic and being Irish were really the same thing. And that's the the most important thing to know about St. Paddy's Day. In Ireland, until television of American St. Patrick's Day parades showed up there, it was almost entirely a religious holy day, patron saint of Ireland. And they saw in the United States, yes, it's a party, but it's also a kind of a military display of Irish power. The marching pipes are, are also known as the war pipes. The earliest St. Paddy's Day celebration in the New World was probably around 1600, and it occurs in Florida, and it's a bunch of Irish who have been pressed into the Spanish soldiery there. And and there's, you can be sure that that was basically a fife and drum. You can be sure that that was a military marching parade uh, behind the celebration. So when you go to St. Paddy's Day, behind all the, you know, the green and the balloons and the beer and all that kind of stuff, the, you, you see these two things, these two features. One is the, this Catholic identity, and the other is this idea of, resistance of of force and these things uh, throughout the throughout the music you see them playing back and forth so what i want to do is look at a a tune that comes out of the so-called second desmond rebellion what happened was between uh, 1550 and 1585 it's a very very difficult period in irish history uh, because in ireland the rulers there were, of course, Catholic, as everybody was at that point. And when Henry VIII wanted uh, a shift to make himself the head of the church, 
the Irish lords were very much concerned that that would mean their control over their own territories would be diminished. They, they couldn't quite see what his full purpose was. And so there was a great deal of resistance to it. And that's the, the first time, I guess, that in, in the historical record where we can see the, the rebellion and the religion strains braided together. And in 1580, there was a great, a great fight. And it, it's manifest in a, in a song. And the song wasn't written till about 1898. And it tells the story of the fight. But what's cool about it is that the music was apparently played at the battle, the Second Desmond Rebellion. And so, uh, as very often happens in these songs, in these, uh, these Irish tradition songs, the text and the music come from really different places. It's unusual for somebody like uh, the Cranberries, where she composed the music and she composed the lyrics. This was a case where we know what the band played, and it's a marching tune. And somebody comes along, a scholar really, 300 years later, and, and maps the story of the rebellion onto that tune. And that's, uh, that's so characteristic of Irish music. Um, everybody is copying from each other, everybody is stealing from each other. So the marching tune, it's, It's like that. And so you can imagine that just with drums and, you know, fife or something less formal than bagpipes. And the tune is called Follow Me Up to Carlo. And Follow Me Up to Carlo tells the story of this rebellion and uh, a guy named Mikair Og who was driven from his castle by the English forces. But then the Irish counter-assaulted, and so this is encouraging him to cheer up. And it talks about how uh, all of the English forces are, are defeated, and it also refers to some pretty gory stuff, which is common in these songs, where uh, they say, well, you know, Fitzwilliams, who is the governor general at this point, representing the English crown, we're going to cut his head off and send it back to Liza and her ladies, meaning uh, Queen Elizabeth. So the, the tune goes like this. Lift McKay, herog your face, brooding o'er the old disgrace, where black Fitzwilliam stormed your place, drove you to the fern. Grace said victory was sure, soon the firebrand he'd secure, until he met that Glen Malure. Fech McHugh O'Burn, curse and swear, Lord Kildare, Fech will do what Fech will dare. Ah, Fitzwilliams, have a care, for fallen is your star low. Up with halbert, out with sword, on we go, for by the Lord, Fech McHugh has given his word, so follow me up to Carlo. See the swords of Glen Email, they're flashing o'er the English pale. See all the childers of the gale beneath O'Burn's banners. Rooster of the fighting stock, would you let a Saxon cock crow out upon an Irish rock? Fly up and teach him manners. Curse and swear, Lord Kildare, feh will do what feh will dare. Now Fitzwilliams have a care, for fallen is your star low. Up with halbert, out with sword, on we go, for by the Lord. 
Fechmikiu has given his word, so follow me up to Carlo. From Trasagar to Clonmore there flows a stream of Saxon gore. Ah, great is Rory Agomore, sending loons to Hades. White is sick and grey is fled. Now for Black Fitzwilliam's head we'll send it over, dripping red to Liza and her ladies. So that's it, and it, it, it goes on. But you can see this is basically a history lesson in a song. And it's important to know that this comes out at the very end of the 19th century when what's on the Irish's mind is the death of Parnell, who was Ireland's best hope for home rule in the 19th century, and this sort of revival in this tradition of rebellion. And so this is a song about when the Irish threw the English out. Who's hearing this and who's singing it in the late 19th century? Well, what's happening in the late 19th century in Ireland is we're 50 years, more or less, after the, the famine. And there's been an attempt to um, rescue the rule of Ireland from the British Parliament. And it almost happens, but doesn't. And Ir Irish politics are in disarray. Oddly enough, much of the argument for much of the propaganda, much of the rallying for independent Ireland happens through sports and sport venues. And so this is the kind of, follow me up to Carlo, is the kind of thing that would be played and sung in those kinds of, of circumstances. And it still is. It's still identified as something that in sporting settings you might hear um, the wrestling team, I think, maybe in the 2008 Beijing Olympics, I think the Irish wrestling team sang this before their matches. And so it, it survives in that tradition. Because remember, at this point, the Irish weren't allowed to carry arms still. And so they would, uh, as often as not, be out with hurley sticks. And if you've ever seen a hurley stick, you think, well, the difference between that and arms is is that you can't shoot bullets out of hurley sticks, but otherwise they're, they're pretty lethal. Uh, so it stays popular that way. But I'm, I'm thinking once we were invited over to Michael Friedman's house and he had a friend who was visiting who demanded that it be sung in the, at the dinner table. So it's, it's something that people who are familiar with Irish history and the tradition of song in that history, it's on their radar. So that we're not uh, just talking about St. Patrick and war, uh, uh, Jenny could sing another song, and uh, this one is from the 17th century. It's from about 1650, and it's a great modern translation. It's called Stretched on Your Grave, and it's a, it's a drum and voice tune. That Just because it's not about, you know, suffering and war doesn't mean it's uplifting, because when you talk about the Irish soul, you have to talk about a great love for sadness.
So that's a that's a example of a bardic tradition Irish poem, and uh, the original is <laughs> if if that wasn't long and sad enough is longer and sadder, uh, and that was put to music fifty years ago only, and then people like Sinead O'Connor recorded it, and it, of course it was originally in Irish. Thank you so much, and the the notion of the smell of the earth and the peat bogs and Seamus Haney and all of those images. Is there a sense, too, in terms of the earthiness and returning to the earth? You mentioned the sense of rebellion. Is there anything in in these songs about a rebellion against death and dying? Well, I think you just heard that. And the idea of nature and the idea of death, again, the wearing of the green. It's all over that song. I keep returning to that because, of course, that's probably the one song that everybody associates with St. Patrick's Day. So everybody knows this tune. Uh, The United States have been a cause of a lot of conflict in Ireland. One is something that might immediately occur to you, and that is our successful rebellion against English rule in 1776. That sent out after effects all over Europe. Um, many people have argued that the French Revolution was basically an attempt to throw off rulers who were actually also French. But the, their inspiration, and, and we, we, we know this for sure, their inspiration, many of their leaders, was the success of the American Revolution. And the same thing happened in Ireland. The Irish thought, well, we're closer, so the English or the British can bring their force to bear on us more easily than they could on the States. And we're smaller and we're more compact. But if they could do it, maybe we could do it. And there's a rebellion in 1797. And then there's another, well, there's sort of a series of rebellions over the next six years, and another big one in 1803. So that's a six years of rebellion. And 
the English, by 1803, were tired of the Irish being a destabilizing force. They thought they had solved it in 1800 with the Act of Union, when they basically absorbed the Irish Parliament. That might look like a good thing. Oh, look, the, the people elected in Ireland get to come to England, but they're, they constituted a drop in the bucket in the English Parliament, and so they effectively lost all ability to effect life on the ground in Ireland. And so the rebellions continued, and 1803 got really very violent. And this song, Wearing of the Green, in various versions, starts being sung immediately. But the deal is, the tune keeps changing. New stanzas, if we talk of it like a poem, new verses are being composed by different people in different places and adding to it. And I tried to count once, and I can, I can find about 25 stanzas to this thing that are out there. And so I, I usually break it down to six, which show you, first, the different perspectives of, of Irish who were part of this losing side, but also the incredibly beautiful poetic way in which Irish despair and defiance are captured and rooted to the ground, rooted to the land of Ireland. Everybody knows the first one. Ho, ho, Paddy there, and did you hear the news that's going round? The shamrock is by law forbid to grow on Irish ground. No more St. Paddy's Day will keep, his color can't be seen. For there's a cruel law against the wearing of the green. Okay, so it was in fact the case that the rebels in Ireland had no uniforms. And very often, Heaney writes a great poem called The Crappy Boys uh, about this fact that very often they went into battle with regular British troops with nothing but farm implements in their hands, hoes and rakes and, and hay forks. And of course, they had no uniforms. But in an effort to, to try to distinguish themselves, they took to making sure everybody was wearing a bit of green. And then that became a kind of a code that you were supporting Irish independence if, if you were wearing green. And so the English responded by literally making it illegal to wear green. And that might seem absurd, but after you know, 110 years of the so-called penal laws where every aspect of Irish life was made illegal, it was hardly news. Second, I he met with Napper Tandy and he took me by the hand. And he said, how's poor old Ireland and how does she stand? She's the most distressful country that ever yet was seen. For they're hanging men and women there for the wearing of the green. Okay, so this is set in Paris. And Napertandi had fled. He was a rebel leader. Uh, he um, is being told the penalties. And this is historical fact that the British, when they found somebody wearing green, it, it was treason. And they were summary executions of men and women. The third stanza here that I'm going to read to you is from the point of view of an exile. My father loved you tenderly. 
he lies within your breast. Whilst I, who would have died for you, must never so be blessed. For her laws, their cruel laws decreed, that seas must run between. Old Ireland and her faithful sons, who love to wear the green. And this was probably written by somebody who fled to America because it shows up there in versions of the song before it shows up elsewhere. But this idea that, that the saddest thing you could say was that my clay cannot be mixed with the clay of Ireland and the clay of my family because seas, it has been declared, must run between. And then the next one is from a perspective of somebody who's gone to England or Scotland or Wales. There's a reference in it to the thistle and the rose. And so that's the national symbol of Scotland and the national symbol of England. Oh, I care not for the thistle and I care not for the rose. For when bleak winds round me whistle, neither down nor crimson shows. But like hope to him that's friendless, with no joy around is seen. Or our graves with love that's endless blooms our own immortal green. Okay, the down from the thistle and the crimson from the rose are rejected. And instead you get just the green of nature. And this becomes this identification that what the English have is law and they have force, and they have cruelty, and they have blood. And what Ireland has is nature, all of nature, and this idea that, that no matter how obscurely they bury us, nature will celebrate us by covering us with green. So, oh, if the color we must wear be England's cruel red, let it remind us of the blood that Irish men have shed. And pull the shamrock from your hat and throw it on the sod. But never fear twill take root there, though underfoot tis trod. So it, it's a rebranding. They said, oh, we, we can't wear green, we have to wear red. And so they're rebranding it. They're saying, okay. Think of the red uniform of an English soldier as having been stained red with the blood of Irishmen. And if we have to wear it, think of yourself as wearing the blood of your fallen comrades. And if we have to, of course, they had no official insignias, but it was very common to put a shamrock on their front of their flat cap or beret or whatever they were wearing. And, and they were told they couldn't do that anymore. And the idea was, take it off, throw it on the ground. It will take root and spread from there. And then this final stanza is just weepingly beautiful, I think. When laws can stop the blades of grass from growing as they grow, and when the leaves in summertime their color dare not show, then I will change the color to I wear in my cabine. But till that day, please God, I'll stick 
to the wearing of the green. And it's just, here is law, here is human order, here is human force and hegemony and war. And this claim is, can you stop the grass from being green? Can you stop the leaves of trees from being green? When you can stop that, then I'll stop wearing green. And then at the end, please God, I'll stick to the wearing of the green. And it's just, it's a fabulous tune. And it looks at what we call the Irish diaspora. And, and the American flight, continental flight, people being buried in the ground in Ireland for the fight. And you can see why this is, you know, Faithful Sons of St. Patrick and various groups are named after lyrics in, in this song because it captures so powerfully this sense of you can kill us, but you can't kill us. Do you have a sense when you're taking in the news of Ukraine? Are there things that this music speaks to in that experience? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's the... It's the same thing where it's like the American Civil War, you know, cut right through families. Ukrainians and Russians have so much in common. One of the things they have in common is a fierce independence. And of the many tragedies that occur in the Ukraine, it's that you have brothers, effectively brothers killing brothers, people, the townspeople killing other townspeople. And it's larger economic and geopolitical forces that are driving this and the people who are killing each other. Well, on the one side, you have the, many of the mercenaries, poor draft, draftees who are being fed into this uh, terrible battle. And on the other side, people who are fighting for their lands and for their ability to control their lives and what they understand to be their culture. And, and it maps pretty exactly onto... Uh, the experience of the Irish in many times. Zombie by Dolores of the Cranberries, performed here by Jenny Whitaker and Stephen Whitaker. Dr. Whitaker is a musician and professor in the Department of English and Theater at the University of Scranton. His areas of scholarship are rhetoric and the great Irish writer James Joyce. 
Jenny Whitaker is an occupational therapist and a vocalist. She's Dr. Whitaker's wife, and she often joins him. And as we hear, she's able to capture the keening, sorrowful sounds that express the grief and sadness present in so many Irish songs, but also the passion. You can find more information about Dr. Whitaker on the University of Scranton website, scranton.edu. Dr. Whitaker spells his name S-T-E-P-H-E-N. His middle initial is E. Whitaker, W-H-I-T-T-A-K-E-R. You can find him on the web as well. And we thank Dr. Stephen Whitaker and Jenny Whitaker for joining us in the studio for this St. Patrick's Day special. It's the same 